I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by violinist Elizabeth Field, who has a doctorate in historical performance practice from Cornell University. She's co-director of the Vivaldi Project, previously toured and recorded with the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, and is currently the concertmaster of Bethlehem Bach. In this episode, we talk about how we as musicians create music from the written page. A special guest joins in for an experiment, and she puts together a phrase note by note on the violin. Liz Field, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to talk with you about how we make music from written down sheet music, because don't you think as musicians, it's so easy to forget that non-musicians often have no idea what they're looking at when they see a piece of music. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me and and letting me talk on this really exciting subject. And it's something that's really dear to my heart that uh, we love for, especially for our audiences, to really kind of engage with us and understand what the process we're going through to bring this music to life, hopefully, in a concert. So... I wanted to speak to some non-musicians about this. So I spoke with two of my colleagues here at WETA, and I want to play for you now their responses. I gave them a piece of music, and I asked them, how do musicians make music from this? The first one we're going to hear is from Sandra Kushner. I asked her because I know she likes classical music. She's involved in ballet, so I figured, you know, she probably knows a bit about what's going on here. Then... I asked Nick Scalara the same question, and he plays the guitar a little bit, but no offense, Nick, you know, he, he really doesn't know anything about classical music. So here's what they said when I asked them, how do musicians make music from written sheet music? Well, they're reading the different notes on the page. Um, I see it's treble clef. Uh, gosh, I forgot what the other version is for when I used to play the cello. I forgot what the other symbol was for the treble clef. Um, so it's just reading the notes on the paper. Each note has a different placement, whether it's violin or a woodwind instrument. Oh, there's the there's the six eight timing. So the sharps, the rests. That's what comes to to my mind. Um, somehow they look at the sheet of marks and they know where to put their hands and move things like bows across strings. Um, I don't read music at all. This looks insane to me. There are a million notes. Um, The closest I come is like tabs online for guitar, and um, those are really simplistic. This looks tremendously complicated. And there's also a lot of Italian. And though my last name is Italian, I don't read it. So I'm, I'm kind of baffled. It's so interesting to hear non-musicians describe the music that's written down. Those were fantastic answers, actually. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting to me is listening to them <clears throat> respond to the the written page is their immediate uh, response is, how do you play that music? And in the 18th century, they were, they were very, very clear that there was a distinction between execution and expression. So what, what they were referring to is the execution is how do you get the notes, basically pitches and rhythm. Yeah. So And that's execution. Now, and that's great, and that's a huge study, and that's how you learn how to play the instrument and how to read the music and all the sharps and all those, right. all those things on the page. But the real fun begins after that point. 
Exactly, because when I'm teaching a student, uh, if it's a younger student, and they play the music, they play the right notes in the right places. They play this part loud. They play this part soft. And at the end, it's like, congratulations. You've now accomplished 1% (laughs) of what is possible here. Now we have the other 99% to explore. How do you play those notes together? How do you play that loud? There's a million different ways to play something forte or loud. Right. And I think the first thing to do is, though, is maybe go back to square one and let's actually start with this score. Yeah. And I uh, this sheet of paper. So we're go through this, walk ourselves through this process. Um, and thinking about that sheet of paper, I, I like to start this conversation with trying to understand where that sheet of paper came from. And I think this helps gives perspective on what written notation really is. And, of course, with music, the sheet of paper comes from a composer. Mm-hmm. And some at some point in time, maybe now, maybe 200 years ago, a, uh, a very well-trained, creative, magnificent composer has basically a sound image in his head of beautiful you know, melodies, rhythms, instruments, colors, all kinds of things. And he wants... He needs to bring that to life. And all he has, the only vehicle he has is these dots and scratches on a piece of paper. I mean, when you think about that, that it's a code. And think about what it would take to bring this incredibly abstract idea out into the living public, you know, maybe 200 years after he's passed. Yeah. So it is really an, it's phenomenal that the written notation can be as good as it is and can give us so much information. Yeah. One thing to think about is that all the arts actually have this somewhat fraught relationship with written notation because this is what the arts are. It is essentially communication and expression, which is not spoken face-to-face language, which is kind of our primary way of of communicating. So we're communicating abstract ideas, not face-to-face. If you think about dancers, if anybody's ever looked at a, a page of choreography, it's really baffling. I would have no idea what I'm looking at. Yes. And then you go to the ballet and there's like these beautiful women doing twirly things and on their toes. And, you know, that was a scrawl, little curly cue on a piece of paper. Yeah. It's stunning. But another um, um, analogy, and I I really love this, I think it's more direct, is really language to language. So if you think of a playwright writing a script, he's giving it to actors. Again, they're reading this language off a piece of paper and they have to bring it to life. And this is different because this relies on your reader having complete fluency of the language. So understanding, and this is an important term to me, understanding an entire palette and range of what I call unnotated expression. And I have a really wonderful exercise, and I'm John has been kind enough to find us a, a willing subject, hopefully, for this little exercise. I think it's a really fun demonstration on how we can see the degrees that unnotated expression give us to a performance. Okay, so now we have Nicole Lacroix, our afternoon host on Classical WETA. Nicole, you have no idea what you're about to do, right? None whatsoever. I'm shaking in my boots here. (laughs) Okay, so this is a great example that I've done before, with Liz. And Liz, why don't you take it away? Okay. First of all, thank you, Nicole, for being a willing subject to this. I've done this many times and 
up to this point, nobody's had any problems with it. So thank you again. So what we're talking about is unnotated expression, which is really what do we get, what can we get from a piece of written music? We're talking, of course, about music, but I've made the analogy towards to a playwright and a script. So we're trying to find out what it is that we can get from a piece of paper that isn't actually notated on the, on the page. So the exercise is this. We're going to pretend that you are a budding young actor and you're waiting for your big break. And suddenly you go home and the phone rings and it's Steven Spielberg. This is it. Your blockbuster film has called. It has one line. Now I have to ask you, do you speak Latvian? Not at all. Okay, so the problem is the script is in Latvian. So, but you do have this one line that's going to make or break your career. Okay, now I, I do need to make a caveat because I've done this exercise a number of type, times and people who speak Latvian say it's not really perfect, but I'm going to blame Google Translate for it, that. And this the sentence does work really well. It's perfect. It's perfect. So here's the sentence, and I'm going to ask you to read this sentence. So remember, I'm now playing the role of Steven Spielberg. And I'm here. The sets are on. We're in the booth. And go. And this is line. my big audition. This is no, no. You've got the job. I've got the job. You've got we're, the job. We're on set. But and we will have this sentence also on the website at classicalbreakdown.org. But you don't need to see it to understand right. kind of what's going on okay. here. As Milu Sejot Satiks me. Oh wow! Wow. Okay. <laughs> so that was quite moving. I've got to say. And she had this beautiful expressive look to her as well. Now, I'm going to be the director, and I'm going to talk to you, and I want you to make everything I say, I want it to be analogous to music. So kind of I'm going to tell you things like, oh, you have a beautiful voice. So if that were a director talking to a musician, that would be kind of like, oh, you have gorgeous tone. And in fact, you pronounced everything really quite precisely. So you, play, you, did all, you played all the notes correctly, and they were in tune. But I'm the director, and it's like, ah... Can you do it with more feeling? Es Milu, c'est satix me. Oh my goodness, wow. this was beautiful. That was really different. And she used, uh, we can also make the analogy, she used a lot of these musical devices. There was a bit of dynamics, things got softer. I heard some different articulation and different inflection. But I'm still not happy. I need more feeling. Es Milu Sejot Satiks Me. Wow. Wow, that's different. Okay, so any musician would know that we've, we had tenudos, maybe some accents and sforzandos. Now, I, I, I need to remind the listening audience that Nicole is looking at this piece of paper. I have not written anything on the piece of paper between these three renditions. And they're all quite different. So I, I could keep asking you this, and you're going to get, I think, pretty frustrated why are you frustrated? No matter what, how many times I ask you, it's not right. Can you need more feeling? Why are you frustrated? Because I don't know what you want. Right. But even if I tell you what I want, there's something else that you don't know. I don't know what it means. That's the truth. So if I tell you that the first two words, which are es milu, means I love. So now, and I can see, I see in your face, there's a recognition. Okay, so now can I hear this line? Es Milu Sejot Satix Me. Oh, that was beautiful. Yeah. So a musician would say, oh, that sounded dolce. Sweet, right? very sweet. Very, very sweet. Loving and, and sweet. Loving and sweet. And then I'm going to say, okay, well, actually, the full translation is, I love sitting in traffic. That's a bit different, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So what, is, what does that 
tell es you. Esmi lu se jot satiksme. Yeah, right. So you should sarcastic. see her. Yeah, sarcastic. Now, I did not write the word sarcastic. But she just, because she's fluent, now that I put it in English, she's fluent in English and understands the whole range of what that the possibilities of that language gives her. And she imbued that. And I mean, we've heard you say this like five times, and they're all completely different. Now, here's the other, the other element. What is the story about? Well, and that's a really important question because the same notation in different contexts can mean something different. So I'm going to give you, you know that it means I love sitting in traffic. And our first idea is, oh, that must be sarcastic. But I'm going to actually tell you that your role is that you're the mother of 12 children. And the only time you have by yourself is sitting in traffic. So it's sincere. And so that, with that context, what do we get? Ah, es mi luz se shot satiques me. Yay! Beautiful. Beautiful. And she even improvised and ornamented it with a, yeah. with a gorgeous. That was beautiful. And that's what I'm looking for. So that's the exercise. And I think what's important, to, I, I want to reiterate that I had, did not add any markings ever to this piece of paper while she went through that exercise. It's just words on the page, nothing else. Right. So she knew how to pronounce them, but she didn't know what they meant. And that is what gives us what that's what the fluency in a language offers us. And you can't imagine if I had tried to notate all those different versions you gave me. The page would be illegible. And imagine the number of symbols that you would have. We'd never be able to read it. So that's a little bit what's going on with musicians. Our, the, our job as performers is that the first thing we do have to do is mine the written page for everything that the composer has written. Any scratch, any scrawl, any little marking, we have to know everything that we can from what is in the notation. And then we have to try and interpret that, expand it, personalize it, inflect it, all these other things. And the way we do that is that we have an entire toolbox of expressive tools. So I think we, uh, John and I are going to talk a little bit about those kind of tools that we have, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit how the process in which I use those tools to make choices and to make different versions of this notation, notated music. Thank and you, Nicole. That was you. fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so we're going to take a break now, and then Liz is going to really bring to life on the violin this expressive palette. Classical Breakdown is made possible by Classical WETA. Join us for the music anytime, day or night. To listen live, just go to our website, classicalweta.org, or download our app. It's free in the App Store. So let's now bring to light some of these written musical instructions to everyone listening, because when we listen to music, we hear different musicians approach these instructions all very different. It's always a personal interpretation. And I think knowing some of these things that we're talking about with these instructions helps you better identify, you know, why you really like or dislike a particular recording or, or kind of performance. So you've got your violin here. It looks... Old and it, it, it quite old. Old dust, old dusty violin. So in music we have dynamics. 
um, forte being loud, piano being soft, um, fortissimo, very loud. It's not always just very loud, but that's yeah. a good way to explain it. Also, mezzo forte, moderately loud. So it's, it's all these Italian terms to basically try and describe grades of volume. But I, I can try and demonstrate some of the differences. Yeah. So you want to do, should I do piano first? Yeah, let's listen to piano. Okay, so this is just a simple D major scale. And now what about forte? All right, so much, much louder. Mm-hmm. And there's extremes in, in dynamics and also things in between, like mezzo forte, mezzo piano. Mm-hmm. So I can even do... And then there's fortissimo. So forte, piano, we also can go from one dynamic to another. You'll see of maybe of an F for forte, and then a little bit later a piano and a line, kind of like an alligator mouth, you would say, <laughs> describing getting louder from one point to another, so maybe piano to forte. Yeah, it actually looks like the math uh, s- symbol for less than. Exactly. Yeah, so if we go. So going from there, forte to piano, a day crescendo getting from loud to soft. And the other way is crescendo going from piano to forte. And the thing is, when we're looking at the music and we see this instruction go from piano to forte, um, this this crescendo, that again is still just a fraction of what makes the music music because it's not always just from maybe zero to ten like on a volume knob. It may go up and then back down a little bit and back up again, kind of going up and down, up and down. Um, eventually it's louder, but it's kind of a journey along the way right. too. And I can choose kind of in that scale, which is seven notes and then the tonic, I can choose kind of which notes are going to really propel it forward. Maybe the crescendo just starts at the end of the run. Yeah. Or maybe I do it more gradually. And that could really be the same notation on the page. Forte, piano, crescendo, decrescendo. Uh, Another example is subido or suddenly. Your piano and then suddenly on the last note getting to forte, getting loud. Or? Yeah. And that's, well, composers use these differently. Tchaikovsky might have four Fs. Right. um, And then four... And then um, other composers may just use um, more sparingly or sometimes not even at all. And that that is actually part of what some of the fun is for us. It's kind of decoding each one of these composers' individual use of the same language. And it's very funny, especially if you're looking. I do a lot of – we do a lot of exploration of 18th century manuscripts. So you're really looking at the the original – markings on the page, and you can see two very different composers, and they look almost identical because you're seeing the same kinds of notes, quarters, eighths, all that stuff. And then you start to play it, and you start to realize, oh, I see. This guy uses this marking to mean this, and this other guy uses it to mean something completely different. And you only, and again, that's something that's a little bit like what we did with her in the context. The context of what we hear and play around it gives us information. And also, going back to the recipes from that time period, the 16 and 1700s, a lot of times you would see a handful of flour, right? a good amount of butter. Yeah. And, you know, each cook's, each chef's handful of something is, you know, different person to person. And it's up to us to decode and, and bring the music, um, bring the music to life. And in some ways, you know, it... We're talking about something which is very complex, and musicians study their whole lives. And I, I really think maybe three or four lifetimes, I'd kind of get a grasp on what 
all the musical yeah. possibilities are. But in the end, in some ways, you can just go, is it a song or a dance? Yes. That's what we like to do. We like yeah. to sing and move. Right. Pitch and rhythm. So I have a really fun example. Mm-hmm. And it's a piece that um, nobody will know by um, John Baptiste Sammartini. Okay. This will be on our volume three, which we haven't recorded yet. But he was um, – actually, he was a really important composer. He was had a big role in developing the early symphony. So he's a very good composer. Um, from, and he was also alive around the time of Vivaldi? Uh, well, he, this piece is about 1760. So oh, okay. it's a, it's a bit later. later. Yeah. So, and again, that makes a difference because it's similar notational language, but he's using it in his own way. Yeah. And there's – so I'm going to um, – John also has a copy of this. Yes. So I'm going to play it exactly what I'm seeing on the page. And it looks like this. It sounds like this. Yeah, that's, okay. what, that's what I see written down. Right. So I, I think it's – I really like these notes. Yeah. But there's something – you know, I feel like there's got to be more to that. Oh, yeah. So I'll just – I'm going to go through it and give you my thought process and tell you what I did with these notes. Okay. So the first thing I played, if anybody was counting, was 16 short separate notes. Okay. And if we think of those – if we sometimes if we think of notes instead of as pitches – Make the analogy to their like each note is like a letter, so we're trying to find out how to group those letters to make words, and we call that note grouping, rather than just pronounce everything perfectly one letter at a time. So what I'm going to do that's four groups of four notes. So I'm going to choose to group them together. I'm going to choose to group the first eight notes together. Imagine it's like an eight-letter word. Then I'm going to do two groupings of four. Okay? Yeah. Now, the next measure, John can see it. There's yes. a teeny, these teeny tiny notes. Right. They aren't as big as the other ones. And we call those grace notes. Yes. So grace notes is another thing that we can argue about for a minute. Oh, forever. Does it happen before? Right. Or does it happen on? Right. O- on the On the beat when you're counting. Exactly. So dia, dia, or da, da, da. Right. And then how long is it? Exactly. So, and it changes throughout history, and sadly, it changes through each composer. And in this piece, which I won't go into that much detail, but it actually changes within the movement. Right. But what it looks like is that it looks like it's before because it's teeny tiny. So I played. Right. But in fact, I'm thinking, I think it's called, and this is another fun term, an appoggiatura. Okay. And I'm looking at the harmonic structure. So I'm thinking maybe it's a long note. Which and, sounds more plaintive. And that comes, knowing how to play that stuff, that comes through having teachers, having this oral history of how things are played. Because I've had music like this when I was in school, um, uh, maybe some Bach, and I was playing it like that. But then it was, oh, you know, actually, it looks that way, but it's really played more like these other groups of notes, maybe like 16th notes. Right, exactly. Um, not to get too complicated, but it's... It's also an oral kind of tradition. It, well, this is very interesting. And what John's talking about is, is learning sort of these rules of execution, which have unfortunately changed constantly. And it's kind of like your toddler that as soon as you learn the rules, like the next month they're a different kid. Yeah. So the rules change. And then, but again, ultimately it's a case-by-case thing. So the other thing about that, if we looked at the other parts, you'd see that that short note is actually the what we call harmonically tense. So it's this. And we like that tension. 
Yeah. So we'd rather sit on the tense note than on the consonant note. So that's the other reason to choose it being a long note. Right? Yeah. So then I have like two bars of triplets with these high notes sticking out on what we call offbeats. So I thought maybe I can group the triplets together in the same way I grouped. The triplets, by the way, means instead of four notes at a time, they're groups of three. Right. So I'm going to do something. I'm going to add these slurs. So I could, I could slur these groups kind of like that. But I could also change the number of notes under the slur. So I could group then this one. And now I've got a problem because I've got exactly the same measure repeated. And the yeah. one thing I do not want to do is say the same thing exactly right. the same twice. So how about if I vary those slurs? And then I notice I'm going back to the melody. So I'm going to add an ornament. So we had to start with... Here's what I've actually come up with. The same piece of music, this, I'm looking at the same notes, but two completely different interpretations from all that stuff you just talked about. And I think it's important for people to realize that we are thinking about grouping these notes together into words, into sentences, into phrases, into whole big picture ideas. It's not just going from note to note. Absolutely. And also imbuing it with inflections, inflections, articulations, which is how long and short the notes are. Where in phrasing is where does the note go? You know, anybody, there's subtle, subtle things like did I play, the first time I played, but when I added the articulations, I did the opposite. Yeah. And that's, again, that is a dynamic change, but if I had just written the dynamics, it doesn't give us all the information. So, Liz, do you have a, a, a closing thought or anything else with this? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me to come and talk about this. This is a subject that's really close to my heart. Um, just to say that I, I think to recognize when you're seeing a performer on stage that essentially that performer has formed some sort of partnership with the composer, whether the composer is living or the composer is not. And you're seeing um, a different, a different equations of those of those partnerships every time you hear that piece, even with the same performer. Yeah. And the, and the, and the possibilities are infinite. So it, it's really fun. And, and you, can, you can experiment with this even at a very simple level. So if you play the piano, you can, if you learn your notes well, learn the notes correctly, play them at the right time, and then just start letting your imagination work. Exactly. And often... Frankly, some of those expressive decisions I find from hearing myself play the notes, they start to talk to you. Yeah. And, and it's that, that, that feeling of the, the image just comes popping out of the page. And I think you've given us some tools to better recognize and understand all these things. Thank you, Liz. Well, thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on what we talked about in this episode, including the Latvian sentence, go to the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review in your podcast app. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA.